Over four decades ago, medical device pioneers John Abley and Pete Nicholas co-founded Boston Scientific to get life-saving technologies into the hands of physicians. Today, thousands of Boston Scientific employees are continuing that mission. We'll begin to tell their stories here on the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. I'm very happy to be bringing you this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. It was my great pleasure and my great honor to speak with Boston Scientific's co-founder, John Abley. You might have heard John Abley's name at the top of the podcast. Yes, that John Abley. He and Pete Nicholas co-founded Boston Scientific almost over 40 years ago. And uh, we'll learn a lot about Boston Scientific's origins about how he was inspired to join or help create, rather, the medical device industry, uh, what drove him there. He's got a very personal origin story there, and how he came to partner up, and it was a partnership, as he'll explain, with Pete Nicholas to uh, create one of the medical device industry's premier companies. So we covered lots of territory from the early days of MedTech, from the early days of Boston Scientific, to what he is doing in the future. He's got some great advice for folks as to uh, how to remain engaged and to keep working on important, meaningful things. So once again, thank you to John Abley for taking the time to, to share your stories with us on the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. It's my great pleasure to bring you this conversation. Well, before we begin this interview with John Abley, I want to introduce our sponsor, Zeus Inc. I'm here with Josh Ridley. Josh is Senior Global Account Manager at Zeus. Josh, would you take a minute and tell us about Zeus? Sure. Zeus is the global leader in high-performance polymer solutions used in the medical device industry and have been for over 50 years. We supply critical components and sub-assemblies used in minimally invasive catheter-based devices with a particular focus in segments like interventional cardiology, structural heart, electrophysiology, peripheral intervention, endoscopy, and urology, among others. Our mission is to provide solutions that enable innovation and enhance lives. And that's exactly what our products do, enable high-performance, next-generation medical device technology that delivers meaningful innovation and ultimately improves patient care. Thanks, Josh. We'll hear more about Zeus a little later in the podcast. If you'd like to find out more information right now, go to its website, ZeusInc.com. We'll also have a link in the show notes that'll take you right to the page. So uh, once you can go to ZeusInc.com or check out the episode show notes. Now let's begin this conversation with John Abley, co-founder of Boston Scientific. Well, John Abley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to have you here. Looking forward to really delving into the origin story of of Boston Scientific and also delving into what you've been doing since you've become less involved with the company. But we always like to start these interviews understanding what drew folks to the medtech industry. I'd love an answer to that question from you. But in addition, I'd love you just to give me a a sense of what the medtech industry was like when uh, when you first joined. Well, happy to do so. When I was a 
young kid, this is the early, early 40s, I came down with uh, something called osteomyelitis, which is a staph infection in, of my hip. And at that time, the only thing they had was sulfur drugs, which don't do anything for that infection. And so I was put into a hospital, children's hospital in Boston. Oh, wow. And they operated on it. And then a year later, it came back. So I would go through being in the hospital for a month or two and being in a head-to-toe cast and then finally a wheelchair and then finally crutches. And then I'd recycle that whole thing all over again. And as a result, I said, never do I go through the hospital rule. I want to stay away from that stuff. I bet. But having said that, as I went to college and I majored in physics and philosophy, I went and did some research for uh, some people in in terms of getting information on the medical technology world. And I went around and visited a lot of companies. They were all small. That was yeah. the, the the early days. And this, by the way, was was uh, in the mid-late 60s. And the companies were very frequently inspired by a doctor. And then an engineer would come along and build what the doctor wanted. In fact, one of the early people I met in that experience was Earl Bakken. Earl Bakken turned out to be the founder of Medtronic. Absolutely. And at the time I met him, he was selling the products for the little company that I worked for, which were more laboratory products. And we were selling his products, which included pacemakers. And I remember at that time going around with this pacemaker and knowing that occasionally they didn't work. I would take the product that they were going to use and I would touch the electrode on the catheter to my mouth to see (laughs) if uh, the tongue would detect a pulse. And then I would swish it off in alcohol. And uh, that that was safety in medicine at the time. <laughs> was it a ting- would, uh, was it a tingle or was it? Uh, oh, ab- absolutely! It not was more a than a tingle, tingle. Or, or did you did you take one for the teens? Did it did it hurt? I can't imagine. Yeah, no, no. They, you know, remember the stimulating the heart. You don't want to overstimulate. Yeah, it. good point. <laughs> and, and and so that was sort of an interesting experience in the early days, where the science of of the medical technology was pretty crude. Yeah. And a lot of it was uh, experiment. Were all those so, were all those companies that you 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 connected with? Were they all purpose driven? Do they have sort of the that was the mission to help patients at the time, or at that time was it just I'm an engineer, I have a skill set, this person wants my skill set, and that's as far as the the commitment went. It was probably more the latter mm-hmm. than the former, but. It certainly was was both, and I mean, even with with Earl Bach, and basically had some very famous and intimidating cardiac surgeons who were asking him for these technical things. So to me, seeing it at the basic level like that was fascinating, and listening to the physicians talk and listening to the engineers talk was interesting in the sense that. Are these the people who are going to change the field? My interest was to try to understand from these physicians what were the problems they were facing? You know, where's the need and how can we help address that? And our very first product for the company called Meditech, and that was 1969, Mm -hmm. where I had left a company that I had 
worked with and end up managing. And for me, it was, you know, an opportunity to do, have a little bit of control of my own destiny. That's a joke, by the way. You never <laughs> control your own destiny. You just think you do. Um, That's a good lesson I, right this, there. This, somebody is always your boss. It's just, sometimes it's a group of people, but recognizing that and also recognizing there were going to be platforms that would have a bigger influence on the business than just a simple product. And I came across an inventor named Itzhak Bentoff, who was a brilliant inventor who had done a lot of work prior to my meeting him. He developed you know, the first disposable needle, not the first disposable needle, the needle that ended up being used more than any other needle. Okay, And it was was disposable. Uh, but before that, needles that were used on me when I was a kid in the 40s, they would, you know, use the same needle over and over again. Wow. Now, the good thing is they use it on me. So that's fine. <laughs> and they would use it until it broke. And then they'd pull it out with hemostats. And that sounds awful, but it's not awful at all. It just the thing sounds broke, pretty awful. you pull it out. <laughs> and, and it's just that. And I, I had lots of shots because the trick to my getting over osteomyelitis was this funky drug that came out of England oh, really? and was being used in the war. It was penicillin. So oh. I, was, I was getting the first penicillin at that point being used for osteomyelitis. And therefore, my doctors were very concerned. The first time they used it didn't work. And my doctor said, we're going to do more of it now. It's getting stronger as over the years uh they told my mother this anyway so i sort of learned that because i was only that when i was six i guess okay. okay uh with this disease and it was pretty much done by the time i was 10 even though it turned me off from hospitals i love gadgets and and medicine is just the home of gadgets and that became great interest to me and i became sort of early on, sort of a sales engineer. So in, in the 70s, 69, you, you joined Meditech or you started leading Meditech? Yeah. In the 70s. I'm curious, how did physicians at that time view technology? Were they eager to have new tech come in and say, yes, 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 we need help? Or was there a sense of, we can do this without your gadgets? I was a founder of an organization called AMI, A-A-M-I, Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation. It is still alive today. And basically, what we did is develop standards for medical technology. And it was a very interesting combination of physicians, particularly surgeons, particularly cardiac surgeons, but really all of them. And that society got together and actually had a meeting in. I guess it was in 1969, in which they provided the basis for the establishment of a medical device regulatory process in the FDA. And I wrote a fair amount of that. The point is better to control and have something reasonable. And the way drugs were being controlled clearly was not a good model for devices. There's lots of differences. And we made sure that the congressional folks were involved in doing that. It was called the Cooper Commission Report, and it led to magazine articles and all sorts of stuff that put down the, the principles that should be followed in developing the regulation. But going through that experience was sort of interesting because we weren't developing a company. We were 
developing a field. And the thought of the physicians was pretty, pretty naive. I, mm. you know, the science of regulation is very different from anything they do. And a lot of people became physicians because they didn't want people telling them what they couldn't do. And that, to me, was one of the fascinating things. But in fact, how do you balance that? How do you find the commons mm. in that dialogue of difference? All right, we'll take a quick break from this conversation with John Abley to bring back Josh Ridley. He is Senior Global Account Manager at Zeus, which has sponsored this episode of Boston Scientific Talks. Josh, Zeus is a huge provider to the medical device industry. I'd love to understand what changes you're seeing in the industry based upon your customers' needs. So from a big picture, there's a continued pivot from more traditional surgical intervention to uh, minimally invasive therapies. Um, You can really see a lot of the procedural innovation that is predicated on some of the earliest catheter-based devices. You know, you think about the advent of of PTCA um, balloon catheters and stenting and what that meant for for coronary intervention. And, And today, those same basic approaches are now being applied to address other complex, pervasive clinical challenges and segments like peripheral intervention with below the knee access, uh, structural heart, um, electrophysiology, stroke prevention, and, and then also uh, GI endoscopy. You know, these are really challenging procedures in terms of access and treatment, and they require really innovative clinical tools. And, and we're proud to play a vital role in, in helping develop and build those tools. For example, uh, advancements from Zeus, like our Streamliner series of catheter liners, enables access to more remote, tortuous vasculature with improved, more predictable functionality. And we really thrive on those opportunities to work with device manufacturers and solving complex challenges with really big clinical payoffs and patient outcomes. We'll hear more from Zeus a little later in the podcast. If you'd like to find out more right now, Zeus's website is zeusinc.com. That's Z-E-U-S Inc.com. Or as I said, there's a link in the show notes. Click on that. It'll take you right to the page. Now let's hear more from John Abley, co-founder of Boston Scientific. So sorry to take you off track. So let's talk about Meditech uh, circa yeah, 1979. Yeah. When you Did you meet Pete Nicholas at the time or had you already known him at the time? How did you two get connected? He lived in the same town, and I met him at a Christmas party. Oh. And he had kids the same age, so our kids played soccer together and all that sort of stuff. And so we got to know each other pretty well. And I was at that time being told by my major investor in Meditech, where I was a minority owner. I had one of those deals where they funded me. But once I took money, I never did anything I no more debt or anything like that. I just shut it off. And that's sort of because of a background where, you know, born in the Depression, growing up, you know, without a dad and whatever it is, borrowing money, that you don't do that. That that was based (laughs) on that. And anyway, Pete had just come back from Europe where uh, he had worked for Eli Lilly, and he was an extraordinary manager. He came to a U.S. company, I won't mention that one, but wanted to move on. And we were just friends helping each other out. 
And then one day he said, as the company that was my backer called Cooper Labs was being forced to sell me. So I talked to a number of people who made interesting offers, but I got into this business to avoid that. I, I, <laughs> I wanted wanted to control my own end. And uh, so he said, well, why don't we buy them out rather than somebody else buying out the, the small interest you have? So we did that. And that was amazing to me. I was kind of the risk averse person in one sense, particularly hmm. on the financial piece, maybe not so much than the other skydiving and, you know, all hang gliding, all that, but that's, <laughs> that, that's a very different category. But the connection was really a good one. His skills were uh, business generally and, and economics, but also negotiating and coming up with solutions after everybody has said, there's no way to get this done. And he would have some of those discussions and we would be arguing over it. And, you know, every party wanted 90% of the total, you know, one of those sorts of things. And he would come up with a solution that people would say, I never thought of that. Well, that's Mm. great. And that was our early days. And it turns out Minitech was a haven of ideas that were growable. Our first product was a steerable catheter. And I saw that as a platform, not a product, that A, the technology to make it was pretty unique and extraordinary, very difficult to reverse engineer, which Hmm. is something somebody always worries about in those companies, even if they have IP. But we had some IP, but more specifically, we had the ability to execute these products. And we had gotten a nice little business out of it. And so when Pete joined, he brought a different type of organization than I had, and that turned out to be a good decision. Number one, rather than having one company sell to many fields, Mm -hmm. because the technology was very valuable to many different fields and variations of it, the idea of being able to go inside the body and do diagnosis and then hey, while we're there, why don't we fix the problem? Because mm-hmm. you have a tool in a steerable catheter that not only has a tube leading to that place, but you can move it around and you have all sorts of tools that you can make out of wire and so forth, little baskets and so forth. So you can expand, and that was true with balloons. You could expand, you could occlude, uh, you could remove. Wow. Uh, it was really sort of having a Swiss army knife inside the body. And the only option before that was would it be open surgery? There was no other way of getting in there and making changes? No, actually, actually not. Okay. Uh, ours was more dramatic, but in fact, urologists had been doing, if you wish, you know, less invasive medicine for a long time. They had endoscopes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were pretty crude at the time. It was very limited in terms of what they uh, could do. But surgeons generally were very much opposed to the idea of using catheters. They they would tell us that that's very dangerous and it's immoral and unethical and all all this sort of stuff. That wow. But I took a different look at it the way I viewed it at least, and I think Pete was the same. We thought the surgeons would be the ones who would change and really create this revolution, but in fact, the diagnosticians in these various fields, cardiology, radiology, gastroenterology, and so forth said, hey, we would love to be able to fix the problems we're diagnosing for the surgeons to fix them. 
Mm-hmm. So we found these little groups and other people in the business world at that point were taking subsets of these. They were going after one field and they were telling us or others about us that were crazy. We're not focusing down enough. Well, we, we increased the focus down by setting you know multiple small companies with a common financial and uh, management uh, base. And it turns out that the technology that we developed for one field, the other fields didn't see at all hmm. because all the specialties in medicine are very isolated. They're siloed. They've been that. That's the way it was designed. We took advantage of that. Now, it was sort of inadvertently that we did it, but we could take one technology and now rather than one market, we could have four markets because variations of that same technology would have a lot of value for each of these specialties Mm. that were beginning to use catheters and we would help them learn. And that's when we learned that the real key here is how do you get the market to accept these new ideas because the system is evolved around peer review as the most reliable way of developing accurate answers to new science questions. And I saw that as a bit of an opportunity. Let's create a soft landing for these folks so that they'll remember when it does change that it will benefit them as well as others and give them an option to become a surgeon who does surgery with less risk, trauma, cost, Mm -hmm. and time. And that that was kind of the the rule that we were after. How close were you to not doing something with Pete Nicholas? You you mentioned being risk averse. I'm kind of risk averse when it comes to business as well. Was it down to a coin flip? Was it down to staring at yourself in the mirror? Was it down to a gut check? Or was there no chance you were not going to do something with, with Pete Nicholas? Good observation. I had spent a lot of time before I even got into Meditech by visiting businesses all over to say, here's a business that that has a pretty good reputation. And I was able to speak to the CEOs of a lot of companies, lucky combinations, but to get in the door usually is pretty tricky. And as a result, I found a lot of these common things that everybody will ask in order to protect the company from going south. And when I met Pete, First of all, we'd talk for hours and hours generally before we even thought of working together and months and months. And then he came up with the idea, what if we buy them? And at that point, I said, well, hmm, being a partner is a bit different than the way we're talking now. And it was only I talked with his wife because, you know, the way the family is run, so to speak, is an indication of how they may uh, run a business. And uh, she new sort of my skepticism and that presented a great explanation for really? why he's a very unusual guy. He's been a very unusual husband and all of the, that sort of stuff. Wonderful parent to the children, et cetera, et cetera. And so that helped. And we set up as a 50-50. And ironically, later on, a good friend of ours, actually a dealer in England who is a wonderful person interested in the philosophy of business. And how do you do it well? And he'd been innovated extremely well in his own business of selling medical equipment. And 
he said, never create a 50-50 partnership. Interesting. Because you will have disagreements and that will lead. And certainly you think of a lot of brothers over the years who have split famously, loudly. And we did it anyway. And 10 years later, that same person gave us a, a prize. I wish I could show it to you. But it's two silver goblets when placed goblet to goblet, uh, the top. It looks like a dilatation catheter. <laughs> and, and, and he said, you know, congratulations, uh, you defied my prediction. That's great. And it's little things like that that, in fact, do mean a lot. Yeah. It's more than a business. It is a way of life. It is a philosophy. It is a mission-driven sort of activity. And it's all about stakeholders, <laughs> if you will. And yep. that was one of the things I used to ask a lot of the other companies about is, is how do you balance the competitive needs that you've got with employees, with customers, with community, uh, with vendors, et cetera. And of course, the key there is you've got to have a reputation of trust. And part of that trust comes from actually asking difficult questions. Mm -hmm. So you need to challenge your relationships periodically. And if you have confidence, that's great. Now, my confidence was a little bit from different from Pete's. Uh, yeah, I was always looking a little bit at the downside. I could live pretty much on nothing. So in a way, the downside wasn't, uh, I, I learned how to do that. And Pete was obviously looking at, at the upside. And we shared the fact that this is more than a product or a company. Mm -hmm. This is a field that we are helping develop. That's a, that's a pretty bold thing to realize and to say, and you're absolutely right, obviously. Where do you go from there? Uh, saying, okay, we're going to be developing, we're going to be one of the founding pillars of a field. Do you set forth a 10-year plan? This is what we're going to do. Do you just kind of feel around? How did you go about building that pillar and creating the culture you wanted to create at, at Boston Scientific? Or what was it still Meditech at the time? <laughs> That's where our partnership became very valuable. First of all, I gave a lot of talks and I guess I'm not a bad educator and I explained things, you know, in a simple way. And it turns out I went to Amherst and I had a lot of classmates who were doctors and I remember they all hated physics. Uh, <laughs> the doctors were all sort of biological thinkers rather than theoretical science uh, thinkers. And therefore part of my job was to be the translator. And <laughs> I did that and I published a number of papers and I managed to get published in the journals that were peer-reviewed. And simply because I had given talks at meetings and people appreciated that, and then they would publish the meeting and I would do my talk as part of it. So I, I snuck in the back door. So I was the only non-MD in any of these. <laughs> but that also led to the opportunity to participate with a lot of these medical specialties as a partner. Mm -hmm. And to me, that became very valuable. And Pete was, again, sort of the genius on both the financial planning. And by the way, during our early years, we we had to do some pretty pretty careful financial planning because we were always, you know, close to bankruptcy and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. Because that's just part of part of the deal. But it was 
a great experience and our diversity of different markets and products, even though the products were very similar structurally, they were different in function and in design. And when one particular field would drop its interest in a particular product, another one would pick it up. So it's sort of a diversity lecture written large. And that was, again, the partnership piece of that. Pete was very good with the doctors himself, but more from the management point of view. A lot of the doctors were businessmen. Sometimes that was good. Sometimes that was bad. But it was a real opportunity for us to be viewed as partners to them. And I was on the so-called circuit, which is where people constantly giving courses, doctors, and in hotels. In other words, they're not sponsored by the professional society. They're independent. And we were very involved in those. And those courses became our vehicle to get our technology visible to many more physicians. And in a way that was very functionally educational, not so much theoretically, but this is how you do it. And we would have people who were the early adopters in these fields give talks. And we weren't running the meeting. It was run by a physician and a hospital, usually. The establishment physicians would frequently participate, but without control. And that's the difference from the professional society, where you go to those meetings, and it's very strict on what gets accepted and what doesn't get accepted. And if it's going to be really challenging, then they tend to slow it down. How about internally? What were you trying to do internally at Boston Scientific to to develop a company? Did you were you satisfied with having one platform and saying, "Okay, this is the this is the horse we're going to ride," or did you both have a vision like we want a whole herd of horses? We want to build this into something big. The goal we both had is we wanted to really create a sustainable enterprise that was going to have an impact on the field. That was that was it. We were not satisfied with the cerebral catheter. <laughs> the cerebral catheter was the platform that allowed us to go to many other areas. Our job as responsible producers was to make sure they understand how it might fail. All right. Well, this is our final message from our episode sponsor, Zeus. Here again, I'm speaking with Josh Ridley. He's Senior Global Account Manager at Zeus. Josh, as I said, Zeus is a huge provider in the medical device industry. How do customers typically engage with Zeus? So we think it's absolutely critical that we engage both early and often with our customers. They face a very unique set of challenges that require creative solutions. And we have a history of close, consultative, technical engagement. We are very intentional about that level of engagement from you know, the ideation stage through proof of concept, you know, rapid prototype development, and then scaling that as we move into product launch and ultimately commercialization. And while this industry is all about speed to market, there is a balance to strike in terms of taking a, a disciplined, somewhat deliberate approach to ensure that design inputs are identified, well vetted, and considered along the way. We have a, a very strong technical team in place globally, which includes a dedicated team of field application engineers. 
who work very closely with our customers and are readily available and accessible to engage in those discussions around device design and development. And those teams globally are, are also backed up by research and development and innovation centers, a very robust network of manufacturing facilities that have redundant capabilities, including, very importantly, vertical integration capabilities, which are specific to contract design and manufacturing. So when you think about extending that type of value chain to our customers, it really offers a unique ability to bring next generation products to our customers and then in turn, enable their efforts in bringing new devices to market and to their patients. All right. Fantastic. Thank you, Josh Ridley. Senior Global Account Manager at Zeus for joining us in the podcast. Thank you, Zeus, for sponsoring this episode of Boston Scientific Talks. Once again, if you want to find out more information about Zeus, its website is zeusinc.com, but we have a time saver for you. Just go to the show notes on your podcast player. We'll have the link there that'll take you right to Zeus's page. Now let's get back into our final segment with John Abley, co-founder of Boston Scientific. But remember, we didn't go public until we were already $250 million in sales and profitable. So it was a very interesting time. We went public because we had an investor. Abbott Laboratories had had a minority ownership with us with a interesting clause in our agreement that said nine years later, they would have an opportunity to buy the rest. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And they chose not to, partly because of us, Pete and I, they weren't confident that they could get us to be behave more like a larger company. And <laughs> probably that would have been true. But uh, we didn't even have a board until we were $250 million in sales. But anyway, <laughs> the, the point is we had good lawyers and we were always bringing in and Pete was phenomenal at that because he had these amazing friends. You know, Michael Porter just came over to, you know, talk and listen. And so we had a lot of very great people that we could trade thoughts with. And that was, in essence, our board function, if you will. Uh, and Because we had, obviously, financial people who would go over all our theories on numbers and all that sort of stuff. So we were very fortunate. But it was this very unusual combination pete's great strength in doing that his his connection network those are leadership skills that i would argue are very broadly applicable to leading sort of anything with the caveat that over the change of time partly because of the internet that's become more difficult governance generally has been made very difficult the years that leaders are in office has been shrinking whether they're leaders of uh, universities or of businesses, or of churches. The internet and the social media, of course, has provided a window for critics to really take you apart. Well, you've got a, you've got a good one now. He's been there for, for 12 years or so. He's been able to... Uh, he, he's, uh, <laughs> Mike is a rare breed, yeah. and he has navigated that pathway. Mm-hmm. And we all have you know challenges like that from year to year. And understanding the long-term versus the short-term and the fact that do take risk that way. 
but the mindset, the culture of the company is pretty unique. And that to me has been, in my mind, the thing that I admire the most. I think Pete and I started it, but there was a lot of pressure to lose it at one point. We had some leaders who weren't quite up to it. And we came through that. And Mike has brought that back very, very well because of his understanding. He's a younger CEO than many for companies of this size, but uh, he really understands the dynamic of Gen Z and millennials and, and so forth. So what was the company like in 1991 when it went public? Was it still very much uh, an engineering shop that just had $250 million in revenue? Was it a, a business business at that time with operational leaders who maybe have never designed anything or never cut into anyone or just were sort of business folks? Well, it, it was basically about five companies. Okay. And that's why a lot of people thought we were much smaller than we actually were because they were seeing one of our businesses. But we were abs- each, each one was a business that I would say was focused in modern ways. You know, the business schools would like it, even though I'm, you know, quite cynical, you can go over a borderline on those things. But we we were able to achieve some of the long-term goals. So in addition to the actual IP that we had, we had a pretty powerful reputational IP, if you will, that gave us access to not just the leading physicians, but the people who were going to become the leading physicians. I used to say the problem with bringing on a leading physician is that they're already rich and famous. Therefore, one of their bigger risks is is losing out, uh, having something go bad and getting embarrassed. We're saying, well, let's find the people who are going to become the leaders. They have every reason to work very hard in this cause. And people laughed and said, well, how do you do that? And I said, it's not hard at all. You do a social map. You ask a lot of people both the famous ones and the non-famous ones, who do they respect? Who do they trust? And why? Are their strengths technical? Are they good communicators? Are they broad thinkers or narrow? Do they think entrepreneurially, even in a medical sense, and so forth? From that point, I've talked to folks at Medtronic. I know around this time, 1992, they were bringing in kind of their first crop of MBAs to to sort of build, I think, more a more business structure. How did you go about building the structure at Boston Scientific? What are, what are the qualities of the, the culture that you were looking to develop? Yeah, the choice of who we hired, we would frequently work with companies. It depends on the job, whether we're talking about accounting or marketing or sales or, or uh, research, whatever it might be, and uh, or manufacturing, because that was always a tricky one. A lot of companies get into these businesses, but they can't scale very well. And of course, that that whole art, if you will, of medical manufacturing is one that takes a while to really learn how to do well. But borrowed, if you will, from certain companies, we may have taken too many from one or two companies who would certainly remind us of that at that place. But our idea was we want people who do already have the right culture. And we want to have people who are interested in innovation and understand what it means. Invention is different from innovation. Innovation is really on the implementation side of great new ideas. And the implementation side is not so much the technical piece, although it's it's technical structurally, business-wise, 
the business model, if you will. And our interest was creating a reputation among the community of our customers, their organizations as well, that we are there to look at the need issues. What could be done to change the dimensions, all this reducing risk, trauma, cost, and time, things of that sort. Presumably, if you do that, it will have value for a long time. And my view is it still has that same value, if not more so, than it did in 1970. And to me, the choice of people was why are they doing what they're doing? If they are doing because they see the value in working with something that does help people, and it's not just having them live longer, it's having them live a better quality of life. And with the physicians giving them the tools to evolve what they're doing so that it's not a huge development at one time, it's going to evolve over time as the other related technologies to what BSC is doing catch up in imaging, in all sorts of medicines and and molecular new materials that can reduce the risk of complications. That, to me, was getting people who are constantly figuring out how to bring more people into the broader community that we're supporting. I was a great admirer, still am, of of Medtronic. And in a way, my view is we're sort of co-opetition partners, if you will. We have a lot of common goals. We want to protect the field from getting hurt and damaged. And it certainly has been by some players in it. And we want to constantly be aware of that and have employees who feel empowered to make sure we know what's not working right. And that candor sometimes get lost in large organizations. And finally, I know we're, we're sort of wrapping up, but what is your personal approach? To we, we could keep talking about Boston Scientific, your time there and your time after. You've been involved with so many different fascinating projects, reading about your, your, the work you're doing in the farm up in, in Vermont, but with robotics as well, first robotics. Do you have a, a personal credo that you sort of follow that has guided you, has been sort of your, uh, your uh, North Star throughout your career? What helps you find new challenges to take on? Number one is stay curious. I'm fanatically curious, but I think a lot of people are, and that sort of keeps you going. A lot of people turn off that curiosity as they get old or they graduate from a business and they feel you know, separated. My view is I'm fascinated by innovation wherever it can occur. I'm fascinated by the impact on community, on society of any new innovation. So obviously, today we're living in in lots of threats in that regard. But in fact, to me, this is where innovation is more critical than any place else. How do you develop, whether it's regulatory systems or totally new concepts of influencing the behavior of people so that we all have more opportunity, we are all kind to each other, and yet we can compete like the devil? That's what FIRST Robotics is all about. It is about co-opetition. It's about gracious professionalism and getting kids to think that way in high school, you know, where sometimes in their sports, they have the evil empire of whoever they're competing with. 
that's kind of short-sighted. And my view is you all have certain common areas and you can compete and that produces great answers. Big interest now is in food. The crisis we're going to have in food is going to be a real challenge. Not so much food to eat, although that too, food is medicine, but also how do you grow food without destroying the planet along with it, which is sort of what's been happening. We're kind of living in a tragedy of the commons here. Absolutely. And you're you're doing working on some energy projects as well, correct? Yes, yes. What sort of technologies are you looking at there? Well, involved with an electric airplane, which is, you know, problematic because of how do you get electric energy into a plane that weighs more and is less dense than fuel. Mm. And to me, that's going to be a motivator for people to continue to innovate on battery storage. And, you know, maybe it's capacitance storage. There are many, many different types of battery technologies that have specialized applications that will help get more life out of whatever it is. Right now, you know, in the power world, stored energy is mostly pumping water uphill, (laughs) let it flow downhill. Uh, (laughs) But what about, you know, drilling to the core of the earth or just five miles down? I know five miles sounds like a big distance, but in fact, that has been drilled today by oil drilling rigs. And then coming out of MIT, which uses a very interesting technology to drill fast and less expensively in theory. But if you could get enough heat from even three miles down, you can boil water, you get steam. And Mm -hmm. so you can run engines and create electricity. Amazing stuff. Well, it sounds like you're you're working on starting some new industries as well. I'm a little bit more than a fly on the wall, but helping others do it. That to me, that's just a lot of fun. And watching people grow, just awesome. Fantastic. Well, it's been a true pleasure to talk to you, to, to learn about your story and, and the early days of Boston Scientific and the medtech industry. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Real pleasure. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much again to John Abley for joining us on the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Literally would not have had this podcast without you and Pete Nicholas starting the company 40 years plus ago. Thank you, of course, to our great sponsor, Zeus. Once again, you can go to Zeus Inc.'s website. It's ZeusInc.com or uh, hit the link that's in the show notes to find out more about Zeus's amazing array of services and products. Once again, if you'd like to listen to future episodes of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast, you have many options, one of which being going going to devicetalks.com. We've got all of our great podcasts up there. Or you can subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network, and you'll have future episodes of the Boston Scientific Talks Podcast, as well as our other great podcasts sent directly to you. So make sure you subscribe, follow, or like to the Device Talks Podcast Network. And please do us a favor and share this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks Podcast with your friends and colleagues and followers on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Be great to get the word out when you do. Please tag me, tag Boston Scientific. And uh, while you're at it, connect with me. I'd love to be part of your future MedTech conversations. All right. Well, once again, that is a wrap. Thank you, John Abley, for taking the time to share your stories. Thank you, Boston Scientific Talks podcast listeners, for joining us. And uh, we're working on another great episode. We'll have that for you in just a couple of weeks. 